Hello, my name's David, and I'm Russell, and this is Old News. It's good to be back. Although it's only about an hour since we finished the last episode. <laughs> yes, because this is our first time that we're recording in advance. Yes. So two episodes once. Back to back. Back to back. But this is because I'm going to be absent for <laughs> a number of weeks. I'm having a trip away to Canada, which would be nice, but of course the... The downside of that is I have to do a bit of a longer stinted work to compensate for the time I'm going to have off. Hopefully we can get these out in some I, sort of order. I should be able to time this perfectly and get them. One thing we've never really established is like what day or what time of day we should release the shows on. It's I just do it when I do it. Presumably there's probably a like a good time like from a marketing is. point of view. I don't know what that is. We've generally sort of issued sort of quite early hours of the morning. Because I, I generally get it finished uh-huh. very late at night. And, and then just, just bang it up there. There was one time I scheduled it to come out. So I finished it sort of half past 12 in the morning, something like that. And I scheduled it. I set it all up so it would come out at about 6 o'clock in the morning. UK time. UK time. I mean, should, Seem to should we be? Yeah, should we be aiming for you know, the east coast of America? Or <laughs> well, I don't know if we do it UK time, we get a hit from UK listeners. Yeah, and then we get a second bite of the cherry when America comes online. Comes online, yeah, the east coast and then the west coast a few hours later. O L D N E W S. Old news. So we wanted to make an appeal to our listeners. Didn't yes, we? I came up with an idea. Well, I came up with this idea quite a long time ago, but I wanted to give things a bit of time to bed in. So, you know how we have uh, our links where Pete has recorded a number of silly ways of saying old news? I was thinking we could open that up to the public. We'll still keep using Pete's links, but I thought it would be fun to get our listeners to record just the words old news... In whatever in the way, whatever they way they fancy, it can be silly. Yeah. It can just be in your voice. It can be in a foreign language. Well, that'd be interesting. That'd be interesting, yeah. That might make us all hostages to fortune. Yeah. Well, yeah. We'll, we'll, we might have to run it through Google Translate just to, yeah. <laughs> just to completely mess <laughs> everything up. Really, very very rude. Yeah. <laughs> you can record it in any format you like. You don't have to have a proper, you know, microphone on your computer. Just do it on your phone on voice recorder. Yeah. That'll be exciting. Audio you, you know what? You could you could even put it on a cassette and and post it in. <laughs> I have the technology to do that. But um, yeah, any form of electronic recording, uh, I can use any file type, converted. So there you go. Just the words "old news." Old news. Old news. If you would like to contact us here at Old News, there are, of course, the usual methods. You can find us on the old-fashioned interwebs at oldnews.podbean.com. You can email us on oldnewspod at gmail.com. We are available on Facebook. Just search for Old News Podcast. And we're also available on Twitter, at Old News Pod. And uh, if you can find us on YouTube, then well done. Well, another thing I've been thinking about for a long time. Right. This, this has been on my mind. I wish it was more on my head. 
I've been wanting a, a podcasting hat. A podcasting hat. A hat to wear while I podcast. What? This makes no sense. Is it not a visual medium? <laughs> I know, I know. But I just feel, you know how you, you have your, your smoking jackets and we don't because we don't smoke but we don't smoke yes that's true I, I know somebody who does smoke a pipe and actually has a smoking jacket <laughs> I do I do know a bloke who has that so what, what type of hat would you well I've always wanted a fez I a think fez. a fez would be a great podcasting hat I, I do know a chap who used, I don't know whether he still does but he certainly used to wear a fez unironically <laughs> he, he was actually an American bloke right but he studied at the um it was called now SOAS, the uh, School of uh, Oriental and African Studies, which is part of University of London. Uh, he used to wear a fez. Just about town? Yes, just because. Right. But I don't know, it's like it's particularly sort of, it's a certain eth- eth- ethnicity sort of hat, isn't it? And it's, it's not a bit culturally appropriative to... No, I don't. It's only cultural appropriation if you're pretending to be that thing that thing and I wouldn't be I would uh, just be wearing it maybe. as a maybe you'd be wearing it as a Tommy Cooper-esque kind of style yeah. yeah yeah. you're just jealous because I'm sat here with a sombrero <laughs> on yeah <laughs> you have your podcasting hats yeah you see this is the beauty of the uh, the audio format we can just make any absurd visual claims we wish yeah I mean I've got my sock puppet on <laughs> Is he making supportive com- comments about Trump policies? <laughs> Old news. Of course, with this being the second recording of the night, and I have to drive my my car, there's no in, no beer of indeterminate strength. No. So you have a cup of tea. Yeah, which I'm actually making. This is it a cup of decaf tea. Yes, it's decaf tea. Decaf tea. With skimmed milk. It's just, so it's... it's Almost, but not quite. Entirely unlike tea. Unlike tea, yeah. And I've got got, uh, Ribena, or shop shop equivalent thereof. Supermarket-owned brand. (laughs) The the, the supermarket in question is mainly orange, but we won't mention. Oh, right. And that weird sort of colour system that we've adopted for supermarkets in the UK is not unlike political parties. Yes. This is is very um, civilised. I've got my own little milk jug. Uh, you are kidding me. Yeah. See, milk jugs. I was just amusing on this in a cafe yesterday, actually, where you provided with a separate milk jug. All this does is create washing up. Yes, but the, the alternative would be to have the big litre, t- actually, two litre thing of milk in here getting warm while we do the podcast. Oh, you could have just made the cup of tea in the kitchen, right? But I wouldn't have been able to get in here as fast. Oh, right, okay. It's, it's had a correct amount of time to brew. And next time you're going, going to have a, a, a podcasting tea caddy and... <laughs> we'll have the tea... Oh, I should have bought my tea. And pot. Teapot? Teapot. I had loose tea for the first time when I was on holiday. For the first time? I have... Loose to my knowledge, I time. cannot remember having loose tea before. Right, okay. Until I was on holiday in Devon and... In one of the places I had one of my many cream teas, I, ha- I had loose tea with the proper, you know, little sort of sieve type thing to yeah. hold the, yeah, the, the tea the, the going tea, into the cup. Yeah, the tea strainer. Yes. Yeah. So in Devon, they put cream on then the jam, right? You were well, every single one I had, you were expected to construct it yourself. Yeah, well, that's just it, isn't it? And we all know that the Cornish are, are correct on this issue. 
It's jam first, then cream. Yeah. Yeah. No contest. Sorry to Devon. Wrong. <laughs> just wrong. <laughs> I've just entered into a holy war there. Yeah. I mean, we've already called it scone, and that's up. That's that's upset half the country. <laughs> meanwhile, mean, meanwhile, the, in Israel, the, Palestine. the scone enders. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Old news. So this week's subject is this, a rather serious one. It is a serious one, and is one of the problems of discussing news stories is we do tend to uh, deal with a bit of death and destruction from time to time and and this is topic tonight uh, is the boxing day tsunami now that be how we remember it because an awful lot of people don't have a clue what boxing day is no no so generally i found it tends to be called the indian ocean tsunami of 2004 yeah the 2004 indian ocean earthquake and tsunami earthquake and tsunami having sort of looked around a little bit this is a very well-worn path in terms of some of the there's a lot of the news organizations have done retrospectives like 10 year anniversary and that sort of thing yeah they did documentary sort of near sort of right at the time and then Sort of, you know, the 10th anniversary and so on, as you say. But you, you looked a little bit at the actual incident itself, and did you, did you have anything about the casualty figures? Yes, so it affected 14 countries. Indonesia, because the the earthquake happened close to Indonesia, it happened um, uh, west, off the west coast of Sumatra. It was about 100 miles off, off the coast, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. so in Indonesia, Sri Lanka, India and Thailand were the worst affected countries. Okay. It's interesting that um, Sri Lanka, which is on the opposite side of the Indian Ocean, right. was one of the worst countries affected. And between 230,000 and 280,000 people lost their lives. It's just... That's an astonishing yeah. amount of people. It makes it one of the worst natural disasters of all time. Right, you know, it's kind of one single incident. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder, that, that's sort of in in recorded history. Well, but, it will but, be, yeah. But, but then again, I suppose there's no point in the past if we had the levels of urbanisation and... Yeah, the, yeah. there was a, an earthquake in China hundreds and hundreds of years ago that supposedly killed something like 800,000 people. Right. But it was so long ago you can't really be sure how accurate the records were. The historical record is. Although to be fair the Chinese were pretty good at keeping records. Yeah. But isn't there a point, some point after that where the Chinese emperor declared that like any history beyond a certain point was to be destroyed? Right. Isn't, there, isn't there a big gap in the Chinese historical record because there was a load of documentation when it was all just burnt. Oh, I don't yeah, know. I'll have to look that up, but there's something about that. Yeah, so it is just astonishing. It was interesting looking at how the Western media reported this, how with the sort of the perspective that we have. One of the things I noticed actually during the incident, sort of the the day and the, the day of the incident, and, and as it sort of progressed over the next few weeks, was that it was definitely one of the first disasters where there was a lot of video provided from like camera phones. Right, yeah, yeah, uh, and and the, the, obviously there was people with video cameras, and like the sort of the more old-fashioned video cameras as well. But in that is kind of that that footage all came from a certain segment of society because so many of the victims in Thailand, particularly Thailand, were tourists. Mm-hmm. It seems there seems to be this real sort of imbalance to me that so much of the footage that we have 
or that we see in the West that I could find with in English language commentary attached was from white Europeans yeah. or white or white Americans, and obviously because it's quite a exotic place. You know, it's an expensive place to go on 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 holiday. It's it's sort of a it's a, it's a white middle class segment, mm-hmm. and I wonder how much this colours our view of this. The, to me, the voices of the the thousands upon thousands of local victims in those countries aren't really heard in this. The way the way it like so much of the documentary uh, stuff that I I watched it, it was an anniversary documentary that Sky News did, and that was very good. No, in fairness to Sky News, they were one of the first people sort of on the ground to report from the incident. But almost all of the story that they told was from the point of view of British victims, with only two people from uh, Thailand talking. I think, having spent some time looking at it on the internet, what seems to be out there now... If you were just to do a Google search for the 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake or tsunami, the in, most of the information you find is about locals. You write about the pictures and so on being a lot of, well, white tourists running away from waves and things. But a lot of the information is about the people of the countries that were affected, I think. Yeah, I suppose when you're looking at reconstruction, it tends to be about like the economic data of yeah, you know, reconstruction and. I think you're right. The news media will tend to talk about how it has affected people from their own countries and neighbouring countries. One interesting little fact I found was that, um, particularly Germany and Sweden, were badly affected in terms of numbers of deaths. Oh really? It was actually the most Swedish people who've died in one go since some battle in the 1700s Crumbs. because obviously Sweden being neutral hasn't been involved in any other wars right, and, and very being, stable geologically being a, country being a small country as well this yeah. must have been a major major incident for it, it actually caused political eruptions in Sweden because they were seen as not doing enough to help Right, and I imagine the diplomatic missions of Sweden being relatively modest, being a small country, and mm. then being overwhelmed. Yeah, so you can imagine Sweden talking about there, however many hundreds of people died. So that will be their focus, and that will be their focus, yeah. and sort of missing the hundreds of thousands of people from you know Sri Lanka and so on who've died. Can you stop that happening? No, I don't. I don't think you can. I think it's natural. I guess, but I think the, the, as you say, the the follow up, you know, when there is all kinds of reports done and census taken and so on of the countries as they recovered, that they are naturally a little bit more boring and don't get the same press because mm-hmm. it's no it's no longer as immediate. No. But you think about it, the enormous numbers of people that there are towns and villages and cities there where they lost so many people that they cease to exist really. Yeah, or, or maybe maybe those communities are still there, but they have changed in character permanently because the populations are rather greatly reduced, or uh, new people have to move in, and it becomes a different place. I think there is one of the bits of video footage which is quite common on YouTube, which is taken by some locals, and I think it's in Thailand, and in the background they're talking, and the subtitles provided. And they're looking at the beach, and you can see one of the first signs of a tsunami is the water goes 
goes out. Yes, yeah. And they're saying the locals, the local people are running because they understand what's happening. Right. And the tourists are stood watching. And looking, yeah. Yeah. And what struck me was there's a very famous account of the eruption of Vesuvius Mm -hmm. by, is it Pliny the Younger? So, I mean, this is back in AD 79, isn't it, I think? And they talk about the same things there. The, because the, uh, when the, the eruption ha- happens, it's preceded by a big, big earthquake. And the, the water goes out of the harbour. Right. And all the townsfolk go down to look. look. What, what, why are the boats It's sitting on, on the sand? This mm-hmm. makes no sense. Then the water comes r- rushing back. And a whole load of people are killed in the period just before the, the eruption that, that destroys Pompeii and Herculaneum. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that so many... The, 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 these events are so infrequent that so many people still don't understand what to do. Yeah. They still don't know what it means. I imagine if I saw the water had disappeared over the horizon, I would run because I know... Because you know now, because you've been looking at it and... Yeah, because yeah, I I, learnt, I I I was told that story at school when I was you yeah. know in the Latin class. Well, there's an ago. interesting thing. There was um, uh, on one of the beaches in Thailand. There was a young British girl uh, from Scotland, I think, who had just been learning about tsunamis at school. Right. She saw that happen, and she told her mum and dad. And her mum and dad went round the beach and got everybody off the beach in time. So that right. one girl who'd luckily done something in a geography class yeah. saved how, however many hundreds of people were on that beach at the time yeah. that was interesting to contrast what happens here with the response of Japan in the more recent tsunami there with the Fukushima disaster right. but think about it though that no sooner did the earthquake happen mm-hmm. that there's all kinds of alarms and public safety systems they just kick into action straight away in Japan I mean obviously it's one of the most developed countries in the world. Yeah. And okay, and, and that that was an appalling disaster and thousands of people were, were killed. But it's a fraction for an incident of somewhat similar magnitude. Mm-hmm. Hopefully I mean there has been investment in education and well, sort of prep since we'll probably or we'll be coming to the, the warning system that's now in place. I don't did you look at their website? I, I didn't know. Just literally before we came in, that was the last thing I was writing down. On their website there's a what should I know section. Okay. It's in English I assume it there's ones for different languages for all the different countries that it's for but they have one of those sort of things where there's like three or four words you've got to remember so they've got feel see hear run okay so you feel the earthquake you see the water going out like you've just mentioned okay you hear the roar of the tsunami coming towards you you run for safety right and then you call your warning organisation, yeah. your warning centre, and your that, yeah, that that's that's really well thought out, isn't it? Very sim- simple survival advice. Again, we've talked about about this in a previous podcast, but how lucky we are in the UK to be somewhere that is so generally geologically stable. Yeah, you know, we might occasionally <coughs> have a, a a tremor that topples a chimney pot or something. Yeah. Off someone's that roof. felt like a large truck driving past my house. Yeah, yeah. There was a loud bang and I thought it was a car backfiring. Yeah. yeah. We are so 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 blessed to be in such an area. Old news. One of the things that I thought was worth looking at, because you mentioned the detection the the, the only real detection system we had like 
at the time of the incident was the the American based one in, but that's all, that was all that was all in the Pacific. Yeah, for the so, Ring of Fire. Yeah, so the that is the U.S. Pacific Tsunami Warning Center. Yes, that's right. It's it's operated by the NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. They were, they started in 1946 after an earthquake and a tsunami up in Alaska uh, that killed sort of 100 160 odd people. Uh, and so they're based in sort of Hawaii and have a second center in in Alaska. But as this reading on their site how their system was greatly extended in 2005 in light of the incident and presumably their extended network for detection in the Pacific probably joins up now with the the new network that is now operated in the Indian Ocean. Hmm. Hopefully hopefully this will save lives. You know? I guess one of the big things that has changed now is that all those countries people have mobile phones. Yes. Well, one of the ways they uh, the governments disseminate the information once they know something's happening is through text messages. Right. So there's all the usual ways of, you know, put it on the telly, put it on the radio, loudspeakers, mosque, you know, the speakers in mosques, mosques right, police yeah. cars with loudspeakers, sirens. Yeah. But text message is going to be the main way. That's got to be the, the the quick and simple way of everybody's phone just suddenly beeps all at once. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that, that I took away from the, the Sky News documentary I was watching was just the sheer level of trauma. You know, and, and people talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a lot of people there su- suffering from survivor guilt. Right. It's very, very common. You know where people think, well, why did I die when... So why, why did, did I survive, survive when, when other people died? Other people yeah. died. The other person, and there was one lady who was saying that she was sort of sucked under the the water, and somebody pulled her out, and then they got caught up in a second current. Right. And when when the water subsided, the person who'd saved her the first time had died. Oh dear! Right. Yeah. Because she has this terrible conflict in in her mind about why did that person who saved me die and I, mm-hmm. I was the one who survived. And that's the thing. Like she she was suffering terribly. And there was another lady who was a, a bit businesswoman in Thailand, uh, you know, a Thai citizen. She had ended up sort of cord coordinating volunteers to uh, help with the the immediate sort of medical treatment, first aid, and sort of triage of folk. You know. And she, she had no medical training at all, but because she was just like a natural leader, you know, she'd ended up sort of getting involved in this, and she had ended up having to make terrible decisions well beyond her competence, essential, right. but she was the only person on the ground to do it. And uh, she had suffered terribly from PTSD. I think, in like, there's just two individual stories, and in microcosm, you know, you have whole populations suffering that. Yeah. You know, it it just must be a terrible, terrible cost. The amount of people that must suffer from that all the time, and imagine that the vast majority of people in those countries probably don't get much access to mental health services. Mm-hmm. The more I think about it, the more generally appalls me. Yeah, like the ongoing cost of this that I imagine to this day, and and also with people who are orphaned, mm-hmm. yeah, or or people who became widows or whatever, so their families are greatly damaged you know and can't provide for themselves yeah. and so on yeah old news in the rush to give money the immediate humanitarian aid i just wondered i couldn't see i couldn't really find much to sort of say how much of that money was then held back to to spend on 
the long term recovery on that kind that kind of thing. Mm. To be fair, there seems to have been a lot of money spent on the reconstruction. Billions and billions. Yeah, there has been. I mean, there's been criticism from some quarters. I've got a little bit here which which I wanted to talk about because there was a a report written for the UN and it was written by a a, a group of three NGOs, non-governmental organisations, ActionAid, the People's Movement for Human Rights Education and Habitat International. They looked into sort of the impact on human rights. And some of these countries really haven't performed terribly well. There, there are criticisms to be had uh, with the government. So in Sri Lanka, compensation payments were only paid to men, which immediately excludes widows mm-hmm. and possibly widows with children uh, and also single women. Right. and single parents so that's just terrible and it, you know there's just, uh, all kinds of delays for those people getting any sort of compensatory payments you know when when they've had their uh, livelihoods taken away and also there's a real sort of trend in India uh, of land grabs because right. you've got coastal land well like at one time historically coastal lands quite marginal it's well it's literally it's on the margins right it, in, it's land where poor people live. Yeah. Because now coastal land is tourist land. Yeah, right for development. So you you end up with communities that have been literally washed away and then commercial interests come in and grab the land. Yeah. You know, well, it's ours now, we're building a hotel. And uh, all the other thing is where populations were evacuated like in the name of safety or like or, or we're creating a buffer zone. So we're moving your village two miles inland. Okay, yeah. And now the coastal land gets developed, grabbed, yeah. right? And that that that's obviously really depressing, you know, to hear that sort of going on. And so you got this sort of conflict of commercial interests and government complicity. Mm-hmm. And you think, oh well, who's who in the government is getting the benefit of this this sort of yeah. economic development? But that, now, of course, the commercial interests would argue that we're coming in and redeveloping the place after a major disaster. Mm-hmm. Providing jobs, providing economic development. Hmm, there's maybe some truth to that. Yeah. But you can just imagine the types of people that get pushed out. So the, this report goes on to sort of talk about some of the uh, the groups that get excluded or are badly served in, in the aftermath, particularly women, mm-hmm. constructing housing that is insecure for women, putting women and children at risk of sex, of sexual exploitation. You've got farm labourers and landless people are pushed to the margins and aren't, aren't really sort of cared for particularly well. And uh, Dalits are the, the, the like formerly untouchable castes yeah. in India. They will pay compensation to everybody else, but not to you because you're untouchable. Yeah. So the wealthy people... That's, yeah, that's crazy. Right, the wealthy people get the compensation... Mm-hmm. The charitable help, but the poor people don't. Uh, the, there's a there's a there's a class of people who I've not heard of before. Uh, the, I'll, I'll get the pronunciation wrong. The Mukhems or Mukhems, who are like a uh, they're described as being sea gypsies. Uh, they're uh, from in Thailand, and they're essentially they're a, a, a transitory people that make their living going up and down the coast. They don't live in any fixed place. No, right. they, uh, they they have like small scale fishing that sort of moves, and uh, they you know, take take jobs along the coastline and various sort of ethnic minorities because the background to this in Sri Lanka is of course the um, 
the Civil War still still very much on the go there. Yeah. So there's people who were already displaced and the ethnic minorities, so presumably the Tamils, they get squeezed out as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the government fighting the Civil War in Sri Lanka see this as an opportunity to suppress people. So although there is like a, a story of reconstruction that is very successful, and you know, you've looked a little bit at that, mm-hmm. but there's this other side yeah. to it as well. Did you hear about the... The, the civil war that kind of went the other way in um yes in indonesia yeah i did i, I wrote a little bit about that because yeah. did you read the guardian article about these, yes. these two things in parallel right that's really interesting isn't it how the the rebels declared a ceasefire i think the day after so on the 27th or the 28th it might have been the 28th right and then the government followed a couple of days after that and so th- this is on the island of Aceh in in yeah, which was the worst the worst hit place. place because it was the nearest place to the yeah. actual quake itself. And so they they start peace talks as early as January twenty uh, two thousand and five in yeah. Helsinki. And I think that's remarkable, isn't it? That you know people grasp that op- opportunity to make peace and you know, come to some sort of permanent settlement. In contrast to what happened in Sri Lanka that's a little more complicated there's the thing where immediately afterwards in 2005 the Tamil rebels don't let the local population uh, engage in the elections and that lets a hardliner win if they had voted Mm -hmm. um, moderates would have won but a hardline candidate wins and then what happens ultimately sort of is the defeat of the Tamils in 2009 no number of years later and that is bloody Mm -hmm. and generally all disastrous oh totally disastrous but it totally squashes any hopes that the Tamils have of a, a homeland at that point yeah so it, it, it's interesting to see so this this brings out the best in people and the worst in people old news so what one thing I very clearly remember in this is in, in the UK we have an organization called the DEC which is the disaster the disasters emergency DEC. committee that's okay. right so it, it, it's like a a coordinating group of uh, 13, I think it's 13 of the main aid aid organisations. Uh, I remember immediately up after the incident, the DEC themselves actually did a lot of the television appeals yeah. and the advertising. And I think the, the, the main broadcasters gave them free airtime, didn't they, to, to air, air, air appeals. And that was the first time they did it, and it was really successful. I mean, the, the amount of money that the British public donated was... Yeah, it seems to have put the government to shame. I actually couldn't find a figure for what the British government gave. Did could did you? Uh, no, I didn't actually. Uh, but yeah. there was talk about the fact that the British public gave significantly more, more than the British yeah. government. There was one thing I was reading where it certainly. Oh no, it was on a documentary. It certainly helped that this happened at Christmas. Hmm. Hmm. Because people, like, people were at home with their families with nothing else to watch other than the, the, the TV. And they saw stories of families being torn apart and whatever. And people naturally... It's that sort of Christmas spirit as well. Yeah. Uh, it, it, if it was going to happen, it was the best time to happen in the UK for sort of people being in a charitable mood as such. Yeah. But that DEC, the, the, the committee has gone on to... They are a bit of a regular feature of life now, aren't they? they? Are, when yeah. Every time um, something happens. Yeah. Major incidents. I think the next time I really remember them coming into uh, play was the uh, the Haiti earthquake in 2011, I think that was. Right. All, all credit to them for an organisation that really... 
had sort of been on the edges, and I think a lot, a lot of people, I mean, they were founded in 1963. Really? I didn't know that. I thought it was a relatively a new, new innovation. Yeah. I think the new innovation was the fact that they took this leading role. Yeah. And I think that's certainly been a, a force for good mm-hmm. uh, in the years since. Old news. Well, I think that about wraps up what I had to say on the, the incident of the earthquake and tsunami. But I think it's hard to look at what is out there in the media and the history of it and not be horrified by the things that happened and the things that people coped with. But I think if you look carefully enough about how much good was done, and that really impresses me, you know, the, the amount of people that volunteered to help mm-hmm. and did some really terrible jobs, you know, disposing of bodies and burying and identifying victims and things a lot of whom had no training or whatever and they did it because well they had to but because they wanted to because they uh, and the number of charities that have been set up since uh, there was a a couple who lost a a girl you know english couple who lost their daughter uh, in the incident they have a charity in her name now and they funded play facilities for children uh, in thailand and a children's hospital wing you know amongst other things mm-hmm. there's another chap who lost his brother uh, and he has a charity in his name that uh, you know sends uh, disaster relief to children in particular uh, around the world and mm-hmm. had, had like an educational ch- charity as well so i think that the, the classic conclusion from these incidents is always the no matter how terrible things are, it all seems that some good comes. Old news. And of course, as usual, we've got to thank Ben Sound for the use of their royalty-free music and Peter Kitson for the use of his voice during our little links. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. So if you want to contact us, uh, no, we're not going to start with the word so. If you want to contact us, uh, if... <laughs> yeah.